Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, we've been studying Luke chapter 17, and it's a very important chapter, a very applicable chapter, a very practical chapter, because in it, Jesus shares with his disciples and he shares with us some of the essentials of the Christian faith. Jesus tells us seven things that are foundational to understand as Christians, seven things that really matter in the Christian life. Last week, we looked at the first four of these things that really matter in the Christian life. The first thing that really matters in the Christian life that Jesus shared with us is the importance of not stumbling other believers, of not doing something that would hinder them, that would trip them up, that would cause them to have any type of problem in their relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing that really matters in the Christian life is to rebuke people who sin against you in love. To lovingly come to them and tell them that they've done this against you with the goal of for them to repent and for your relationship to be restored. The third thing that really matters in the Christian life is to forgive people who sin against you. You know, once you come to them and you share with them and they repent, every time that they repent, our response should be to forgive. And Jesus gave that example of if seven times in one day someone comes to you and repents seven times, then seven times you need to forgive them. The fourth thing that really matters in the Christian life is to have faith in God to enable you to do what he commands you to do. As the disciples receive these first three challenges, they recognize, you know, this is difficult to not stumble people, to really rebuke and love, to forgive each time someone repents. You know, Lord, we need faith to do this. We need a trust in you. We need you to help enable us to accomplish these things. And, and we noted that God will never command us to do something that he won't give us the power to accomplish, that he won't enable us to do. So those are the first four things that really matter in the Christian life that we looked at last week. And this chapter has three more things. Uh, This morning we're going to look at the fifth and sixth thing, and the next week we're going to look at the seventh thing. And those things are service, thankfulness, and preparedness. And originally I was going to bring all of those together this morning, but especially as I was looking through the whole portion of preparedness, it deals a lot with end times, it deals a lot with, you know, things that I think are very relevant to where we're at today. Uh, And so I wanted to make sure that we had time to do all three of these things justice. And so uh, we're going to focus on the fifth and sixth things this morning. And so let's look, starting in Luke chapter 17, verse 7, at the fifth thing that Jesus tells us really matters in the Christian life. And this says this, starting in verse 7. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Here Jesus shares with us an illustration of a servant and a master. 
And within this illustration, Jesus is wanting us to understand some important principles about serving God. He starts off by saying, which one of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But he will rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk. And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Now, it's important to note that a servant back in Jesus' day basically had two main specific duties, two things that they were supposed to be responsible for. The first main duty of a servant was to be in charge of the master's business, to serve in that area of the master's business. And in that time, the two greatest businesses were growing crops or tending sheep. And Jesus uses both of these as examples. And so throughout the day, the servant would be out in the field, whether it be tending the crops or out in the field tending the sheep. And when that time was over, when the business portion of the day was over, the servant then had another responsibility. He had to serve the master in the home. He had to come and he had to make the master's food. He had to take care of the master's needs uh, also in the home. And so the first main duty was to serve in the business. And the second main duty was to serve in the home to take care of the master's personal needs. So when the servant's finished in the area of business, he spends all day out in the field, whether it's tending sheep or whether it's you know helping you know pick the crops and, and make sure all of that is going well, then his job's not done. A long day's work, he gets home to the master's house and his service continues because that was one portion of his service and now he needs to come in and he's got to make the master's meal, he's got to take care of the master's needs. So this servant had a twofold duty. The day was focused on the business portion. The night was focused on the home portion of his service. Now notice in this illustration, Jesus says, what master, when the servant comes in from plowing or tending the sheep, will say to him, come at once and sit down to eat? Basically, Jesus is saying, what master is going to say when his servant, who has a responsibility to make dinner for him, is going to say, hey, you know what? I know you've had a long day work today. You know what? Why don't we change things up? Why don't I cook for you for a change? And why don't you just sit down, kick up your feet, and I'll serve you? He says, what master is going to say that? No. The job of the servant is to come and serve the master and to cook the master's food. And so the master is not going to say, oh, it's been a long day. Here, I'll serve you. He says, no. When you get in, the master is going to expect his food because that's one of your duties. And then he says, you know what? You can have your food when you're done. When you're done serving me, when you're done cooking for me, when you're done doing your duty for me, then you can have your dinner. Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, does the master thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. The master doesn't thank the servant because it says, you know what? This is your duty. You're responsible for these things. And so, you know, I expect you to do that. So when a servant came in after a hard day working in the field, they didn't expect their master to have dinner ready for them. They didn't expect to come in and have their master serve them. They expected to do what was their duty, to not only serve in the field, but also to serve in the home. You know, you don't get much thanks or praise in doing your duty. Duty is something that is expected of a person. So rarely is there any thanks or praise for doing something that we're expected to do. All of us have experienced this who have jobs. If you show up at work on time, it's what they expect of you. It's your duty. They say, you know what, you start at 7 or 8 or whenever your time is and you get off at this time. So you come in early or you come in on time, they don't say, hey, good job. Thanks so much for coming in on time. They just say, we expect that of you. 
We're not giving you thanks. We're not giving you praise. This is what we pay you for. You come in at 7 and you're here. Now, you show up late or you don't show up at all, you get reprimanded because you haven't done what is your duty to do. And it's the same thing here. When it's our duty, there's not really thanks and praise that we should expect. So what this illustration is revealing to us is that as servants who obey their master, they do it ultimately because it's their duty. They don't expect praise. They don't expect thanks. They don't expect rewards. They just do it because it's expected of them. That is their role. Well, Jesus is going to take this illustration and connect it to his disciples. He's going to connect it to us and our servant with God. Notice what he says in verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Jesus says, you know what, when you're obedient to God, when you've done what he's commanded you to do, your response should be two things. First, he says, you are unprofitable servants. Now, as I've mentioned many times as we study the Bible, we understand that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. And this Greek word that's translated unprofitable is not really the best translation of this word. Uh, The word means unworthy or undeserving of something, not to be owed anything. For those of you who have a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that your version says unworthy, not unprofitable. Uh, And that's a better uh, translation of this. Jesus isn't saying you're unprofitable. He's saying you're unworthy or you're undeserving or you don't get owed anything. As a servant, you don't earn these things. So Jesus is telling us when you or I are obedient to God's command, our response should be we're unworthy. We're undeserving servants of you, God. You don't owe us anything for serving you. We just do what is our duty to do. I think too often people look at service to God as a way to get things from God. Instead of seeing themselves as an undeserving servant, seeing someone who's, this is my role, this is my duty, it's, I serve you to get things from you. I do things for you so that you will give to me. They see themselves as deserving servants who God now has to reward for what they've done. Look at all the service I've done for you, Lord. Look at all the things I've accomplished for you, Lord. Now you owe me. You, I've earned this. You've got to pay me back. How are you going to reward me? How are you going to bless me for all that I've done for you? You know, that's not the mindset of a servant. That's the mindset of an employee. And a mindset of an employee who has a workspace relationship with God. I'm going to do this for you, God, and you're going to pay me. Just like an employee goes to work and says, I'm going to work from this time to that time, then you're going to give me a paycheck. That's not a servant mindset. Servant doesn't get paid. He goes, he has a master. The master says, you do these things. He does it. It's his duty to do. There's no reward. There's no benefit in that. It's just, I do what I do because I'm a servant. And Jesus is bringing up this reality because so often the disciples as well, it's hard for us to be in that servant role. We relate to God much more in kind of the employee, you know, employer role of, Lord, you know what? We'll make a little business contract here. I'll do for you and you'll do for me. And it'll work out good for both of us. We don't like the reality of being a servant or even more specifically a slave. I think it's interesting, though, we love to use the word Lord. We say it all the time in our prayer, Lord, Lord, Lord. You know that word means master. We call him master all the time, but we don't really want him to be master in the sense of that makes us the slave. 
We don't like that. It's like, Lord, you're the master employer, and I'm the employee, and I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to do these things for you, and then you're going to give me what I deserve because I put all this effort into serving you and to doing these for you. And Jesus is saying, that is not the mindset of a servant. That is not a mindset of a slave. Our relationship with God is not based on earning and deserving. It's not based on, I do these things for you, and now you are having to give me the things that I earned, the things that I deserve. Our relationship with God is based on grace. Grace means unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. And the grace that the Bible almost always speaks of is God's grace towards us, God's unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor being poured out upon us. We don't do something to earn it. We don't do something to deserve it. We haven't worked for it. It's something he gives to us because he is gracious. Everything we receive from God ultimately is because he's gracious. He pours it out on us because he loves us and is gracious to us. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. This starts with salvation. The Bible is very clear. You can't earn your salvation by works. Salvation is a free gift that we receive through grace, God's grace upon us. Ephesians makes this very clear. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, most people are okay with that. They grasp, okay, yes, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not the works that I do that saves me. But all of a sudden, we sometimes, after becoming saved, get into this relationship with God that's works. Well, I know, Lord, that I'm saved through grace, but now I relate to you based on my works, and I do this and do this and do this, and I expect you to give this to me and that to me and this to me. But we need to understand we're not only saved through grace, but we continue to relate to God in our relationship with him through grace. Something we need to understand is that grace and works, they don't go together. They're exact opposites of one another. And that's the thing that we miss. We kind of like to mix them. Oh, I want God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor in my life, but I also kind of want to earn some things as well. And we think we can bring them together, but the Bible's clear that we can't. Romans 11, verse 6 says this, And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. See, grace and work are complete opposites. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Work is earning what you do deserve. And so they're totally different. You know, if I'm getting something, if I'm earning something, that's not grace, because grace is getting something I don't earn, I don't deserve. But if I'm earning it, well, that's works. So it's either one or the other. How am I going to relate to God? Is it through grace or is it through works? can't be through both. If it's not grace or if it is grace and it's not about what we do, If it's works, then it's all about what we do. So it has to be one or the other. The Bible makes clear our salvation, our relationship with God, even the blessings that we have. We look at Ephesians chapter 1, all that we've been given, it's because we're in Christ, all the grace that God has poured upon us. So this is important to understand because when we think our relationship with God is based on our works for him, when we have this mindset of a servant that says, all right, God, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then you owe me this, that, and that. There are two big problems that come with that. The first problem that comes with that is that we fail, when we fail, which we all do, when we fail to be obedient to God, we then respond in a way that is unfortunate. You start to think, you know what? 
Since my relationship is based on works and I fail to do the works that I'm supposed to do, does God still love me? Am I still saved? Does God still approve of me? Is my relationship with God still good? Because you know what? It's all about my works. It's all about what I do. And if that's how I relate to God, then all of a sudden when I fail, which we all fail regularly in trying to be obedient to what God commands me to do, it causes me to respond in a way that God doesn't want. Because I think, well, if it's all about what I do to earn your favor, to earn your approval, to earn your salvation, when I don't meet that, all of a sudden I feel like, well, you don't approve of me. You don't love me. I'm not saved. The other problem is that when we succeed. Unfortunately, we, we do succeed many times in doing what God tells us to do. We are obedient to the commands that he gives us. But when we think our relationship with God is based on works and when we succeed, all of a sudden we're kind of well up with a little pride. The most common response is to be prideful and think, oh, God, you now owe me. Or, oh, God, look at how much better I am than these other followers of you. I don't see them doing this stuff. I don't see them successful like me in this area. I don't see them serving you in this area. You know, James 4, 6 tells us something that should be a, a good warning for us. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, the last response God wants from you when you're obedient to him is to get prideful, to get arrogant, to think, oh, look at me. Look what I've accomplished for you. Look at how wonderful I am, God. The Bible says God resists that type of heart. He gives grace to those who recognize it's not about me. It's about you who humble themselves. You know, have you ever prayed for something that God didn't answer? You prayed and, and God didn't give it to you? And have you ever, when that happened, responded with something like this? Lord, I've been regularly serving you. I've been praying. I've been reading my Bible every day. I've been tithing. I've been doing the things that you've been asking of me. Why didn't you give me this request that I asked of you? If you've ever responded like that, I know I have in my Christian life, really what that's saying is you have a mindset in your relationship with God is that, God, I'm working and you're going to owe me. I prayed this prayer, and you didn't answer it the way I wanted you to. Why not? I've served you. I've tithed. I've done these things for you. I now have earned it. I now am owed it. And oftentimes we get angry with God because he doesn't answer our prayers because we do think we're deserving. We do think he owes us. We do think I've done enough that you now should answer what I want. Because we have that kind of employee, employer, mindset instead of that servant master mindset that Jesus says we need to have. That's why Jesus tells us when you and I are obedient to God's command, our response should be that we are unworthy and undeserving servants, that God owes us nothing, that we have just done what was our duty to do. Well, if we're not doing it to earn something from God, then why should we serve him? Then why should we do these things? Well, the bottom line is, we should do it out of love. That should be the heart motivation. It shouldn't be, I serve the Lord so he will owe me something. I serve the Lord so he will give me something. I serve the Lord for what I can get from him. It should be, I serve him because I love him. Notice what Jesus tells us. He says it several times, and it finally sinks in to some of the disciples. If you love me, keep my commandments. You want to show how you love me? Don't just sing songs to me. You want to show how you love me? Don't just say it. You want to show how you love me? Do what I tell you to do. 
Do it out of love. That's why I want you to serve me. That's why I want you to want you to obey me. I want you to do it because you love me. Not because I'm your employer that you're trying to get something from, but I'm your father who you love. I'm your master who you love. And I want to serve you because I love you. You know, the reality is God has given us so much that we could never, ever do enough service that we would earn or be owed anything from him. If God never gave us another thing for the rest of our life, we could still serve him in any type of capacity for the rest of our life, and we would still be his debtor. He would never be our debtor because he has given us far more than we could ever earn, that we could ever work for, and we miss that so often. The fifth thing that Jesus tells us really matters in the Christian life is to serve God out of love, understanding he owes you nothing and you owe him everything. Recognize he's your master and you need to be his loving servant, serving God out of love for him, not a desire to earn from him. The sixth thing that really matters in the Christian life is seen in verses 11 through 19. Let's see what he has to say. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, Jesus is now traveling. He's on this journey to Jerusalem. We've noted that it's the last few weeks of Jesus' life. He's heading towards Jerusalem. Ultimately in Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified. But on this journey, as he's heading down to Jerusalem, he goes through the midst of Samaria and he enters a certain village. And as he goes into this village, he meets 10 individuals, 10 individuals that have something in common. They're all lepers. Now, before we look at this encounter with Jesus and these lepers, I want to make us make sure we understand a little bit about what leprosy does to someone, because we don't really experience that in our culture today. It's not an issue that we have today. It is an issue still in some third world countries, but it was a very big issue in Jesus day. Leprosy was a very common disease, and it was one of the most feared diseases to get for very good reason. Leprosy starts below the surface of the skin, and then it spreads throughout the body. Eventually, the, the effects of this disease are seen in these tumor-like swellings that start to grow on your skin. The person's skin then turns white. Their flesh begins to deteriorate and visibly rot, creating this horrible stench. And then parts of the body literally start falling off. Fingers, toes, hands, feet, they rot away. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, leprosy attacks the nervous system, so you stop feeling pain that protects you. So you could put your hand on a burning hot uh, whatever fire, you wouldn't even know it. It wouldn't feel it. And then all of a sudden you'd have this horrible burn and then you know, you'd have more issues that you'd have to deal with. So leprosy is a slow, horrible process that eventually kills you as you literally fall apart. But leprosy is also extremely contagious. 
So if you touched a leper, you would most likely get leprosy. And so in Jesus' day, there was a law in the land. If you had leprosy and I came into a group of people like this, I would have to shout, unclean, unclean. And guess what all you guys would know? I'm a leper. And guess where you would go? Far away as possible. You don't want to be near me. I'm contagious with this horrible disease. And so you walk into this crowd of people. You have to shout unclean so that you don't touch anyone and no one comes and touches you. And this disease spreads. Ken Geyer writes this about leprosy. There the leper lives without love, without hope, without the simple joys and dignities of life, like being smiled at, being greeted on the streets, buying fresh fruits in the market, talking politics by the fountain, laughing, getting to go to work, operating a business, haggling over prices with a shopkeeper, getting invited to a wedding singing hymns in the synagogue, celebrating Passover with his family, all these barred to him forever. Not only was this disease horrible physically, but maybe even more destructive emotionally. You never get to be with family. You never get touched anymore. You're never around anyone anymore. The only people that you socialize with are other lepers. And you're just reminded as you look at them and you see them falling apart and you see them dying in front of you of your fate. But of this emotionally heart-wrenching, horrible disease. You know, it's quite common for people to throw stones and other things to keep lepers away. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said lepers were treated worse than rabid dogs. So being a leper would have been an extremely lonely and horrible existence. And I want to paint that picture for you because 10 men who have been living this horrible existence, this horrible life with this horrible disease, encounter Jesus. And when they see Jesus, they cry out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They want Jesus to heal them. They've heard of Jesus, I'm sure. Jesus has been healing people for years now. They There, he's in their town. They cry out to him, Master, have mercy on us. And notice what Jesus tells them to do. He gives an interesting response. He says, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, this is very interesting because there is no cure, at least back then, for leprosy. But the only reason you would go show yourself to the priests is if God had healed you. And in the Old Testament, there was actually in Leviticus a specific law, a specific thing that you would have to do. If God had healed you from leprosy, you would go to the priest and you would show them. <clears throat> Leviticus 14, 2-4 says this. This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. <clears throat> he shall be brought up to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall examine him, and indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, the priest shall command, <clears throat> water. command him to... Now, the rest of the chapter gives all the details of what the leper was supposed to do. But the thing I want us to note is that you would only come to the priest if you've been healed of leprosy. You wouldn't go to the priest and say, hey, you know, I got all this leprosy. I'm going to come near you. Obviously, that would be contagious. That would be horrible. You only come if you're healed. Now, this is why what Jesus says is so interesting. Thank you. He tells the lepers, you know, go show yourself to the priest. But notice, they haven't been healed yet. Jesus hasn't done anything to heal them. He says, you guys leave me and go show yourselves to the priest. With the implication that by the time you get there, 
you're going to be healed. But you know what you need to do? You need to trust and take a step of faith, and you need to go, but yet nothing's happened. Notice what we're told. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. As these lepers went in faith and started walking to the temple to show themselves to the priests, believing that Jesus would heal them, as they went, they were healed. What these ten lepers did demonstrates the importance of stepping out in faith. Jesus tells these lepers, you know, I'm going to do something miraculous in your life. I am going to cleanse you from this horrible disease. And I know you probably want me to do it right now, but you know what? I want you to leave me, and I want you to go to the temple, and I want you to show yourself to the priests. Now, if Jesus would have healed them right then, and then said, go show yourself to the priests, that wouldn't have taken a step of faith. They would have already seen the miracle. They've already experienced the miracle. And all they'd be doing now is walking to the priest to say, hey, look at what Jesus has done for us. Said Jesus says, no, you go right now. Still with your leprosy, still with all the horrible things happening, you start walking to the temple. And before you get to the priest, you'll be healed. I want you to notice it's when they leave Jesus, when they take that step of faith, that's when the miracle happens. They're being obedient to Jesus. They're going to the priest, believing Jesus' words, believing that what he said is going to take place. But notice this. Their circumstances tell them nothing's changed. As they look at the other nine, they're all staring at each other. Hey, you guys are still lepers. I'm still a leper. We see all the the tumors and all the issues. Nothing's changed. What we see hasn't changed. Our circumstances haven't changed. And so they have plenty of reason to doubt. Plenty of reasons to say, why should we go to the priest? Plenty of reasons to say, forget this. This is never going to happen. But they make a choice. They make a choice to trust Jesus, not their circumstances. To trust Jesus' words, not what they see. They make a choice to say, we're going to take a step of faith. What we see, our circumstances might tell us one thing, but Jesus told us something else, and we're going to believe that. We're going to trust in that. We're going to take a step of faith with that. And as they go, once they make that step, once they start going to the temple, that is when the miracle takes place. Steps of faith are not easy to do, but it's often what God asks of us. You know, I know all of us would probably prefer that God would show us everything up front that God would heal us, that God would do everything right away, right up front, so that we wouldn't have to take these steps of faith. But that's not how God works most of the time. He wants us to put our faith in him. He wants to put us in those situations where he says, you know what, I know it doesn't look like this is what's going to happen. I know your circumstances tell you another thing, but I'm saying this, and do you believe me? I'm saying this, and do you trust me? I'm saying this, and are you willing to actually act upon it, even though there are things that might tell you that that's not true. These lepers could have said, Lord, when you heal me, I'll do what you tell me to do. Then I'll go show myself to the priest. When you change my circumstances, then I'll obey you. When I see that I'm cleansed, then I'll do what you say. But you know what? That's not a step of faith. A step of faith is being willing to obey God when he tells you to do something and you don't see how it's all going to work out. You don't see within the circumstances. You don't see what's going to happen. You say, Lord, I'm still going to trust what you say. I'm still going to trust you. I'm still going to trust your promise and I'm going to do it. You know, in my relationship with God, I've been in a lot of situations where I've had to make a choice to step out in faith. Say, Lord, I'm going to do something And I'm going to be obedient to what you said, even though I don't see how it's going to work out. I don't see how everything's going to come together. 
I don't see all the circumstances, you know, the way I might want to. The most recent big step of faith that my wife and I have taken is moving our family here to Pasadena, starting this church. God made it clear that we were to come here. God made it clear to us that he wanted us to start a church here. But you know what? We wanted some things first. We wanted God to provide a ministry team. We wanted God to provide some churches who would support us. We wanted God to provide a job. And so we were kind of sitting back waiting for those things to start to come together. And no ministry team, no church support, no job. And as we waited and we talked to different people about joining our team, we talked to different churches about what we were called to do. We, we looked into different jobs and things weren't coming together. And then both Jenny and I felt like the Lord saying, it's time to go. Well, wait a second, God. We don't have the church support. We don't have the ministry team. We don't have the job. And God just said, no, now's the time. Move and go to Pasadena. And we had an opportunity to say, well, Lord, when you do these things that we've wanted, when you show us that all these things are all perfectly laid out, then we'll go. Or we could say, Lord, we're going to take a step of faith, trusting that you've told us to go and that you'll take care of the things, you'll take care of the needs, you'll take care of all that needs to come together. And we chose to just take that step of faith and believe the Lord. And he brought all that together. You know what? It didn't happen when we first got here either. It took a couple months. We got here. We bought a house. We're here. Still no job. Still no support. You know, still no ministry team. We just started praying with different people about, you know, starting this work. And, and the Lord just started bringing that stuff together. And it was just a good opportunity for us as well. Do we trust him? Do we believe him? Are we going to believe the promise and the calling that he's given to us? But here's a question I want you to ask yourself. When God says go, or when God says do this, or when God says do that to you, are you willing to take that step of faith and trust him, even if it goes against maybe some of the things that you see, it goes against your circumstances, or maybe you want to know everything up front, and God says, nope, that's not how it's going to work this time. I want you just to believe me. I want you just to trust me. Go do it. Now, it might not be something as specific as I'm calling you to go plant a church in Pasadena. Perhaps it's just, you know what, I just want you to put into practice what I've clearly told you in my word. Maybe you're thinking, I need a miracle in my marriage. And God says, you know what, I have the perfect way in which your marriage can work, and I've described it in the Bible. And if you will do what the Bible says, you know what? If you'll take a step of faith, husbands, and love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, if I do that, how's it going to work? How's it going to happen? Just do it. Trust me, take that step of faith that if you will do this and put your wife in that place where you love her as I love you, watch what happens in your marriage. Wives, if you will respect your husband, if you'll put that on, if you'll do what my word says, well, Lord, he's undeserving of it, is this and that. If you'll just do this, watch what happens in your marriage. Or maybe the Lord's put someone who doesn't know him on your heart. You know that person needs to hear the gospel and there's some fear in you and, and you don't know what to say or whatever it may be. And the Lord just say, you know what? Just take a step of faith. Maybe it's a coworker, neighbor, friend, family member. Just go share with them. Go share with them the gospel. Go share with them what I've done with them and watch what happens. Watch how I move. Watch how I come and do what I do so well. So Jesus tells these 10 men to go and show themselves to the priest and they take this step of faith, believing that Jesus will heal them. And I want you to try to put yourself in the position of these lepers. I want you to try to imagine what it would have been like to have leprosy for who knows how long years your body has been literally falling apart. Your fingers and toes, maybe even a foot or hand are missing. 
As you look at yourself, you're probably repulsed at what you see. And everywhere you go, you have to shout, unclean, and people run from you, and people are repulsed at you, and people want nothing to do with you. You can never touch your family and friends again. The only people you can be around are other lepers, and they're just a daily reminder of your horrible fate. You're lonely, you're fearful, you're hopeless, because there is no cure to this disease. Then one day you hear about a man named Jesus. You hear that he's healing people. You hear that he's touching people. You hear that he has this great miraculous power. And all of a sudden he shows up in your town and you see him and you cry out to him, Jesus, master, have mercy on me. Please touch me. Please heal me. And if Jesus touched your life, if Jesus healed you from that horrible, horrible disease, how would you then respond to him? And that's what I want you to think about because that's what we come to now. How did these 10 lepers respond to this great miracle, to this great cleansing that they've been delivered from something that was so horrendous? Well, let's see. Because if you receive such an amazing cleansing from such a horrible disease, how would you respond? Now, you would hope that we'd be very grateful. You'd hope we'd be very thankful. Look at what you've done, Jesus. I want to praise you. I want to thank you for that. How do you feel when you do something great for someone, something generous, something that costs you a lot, and that person has shows you no gratitude whatsoever? They don't thank you. They don't seem to care. You put in all this effort. You put in all these resources, and you do something really wonderful for someone, and they just kind of blow you off like it was nothing. How does it make you feel? You like that? You enjoy that? Now, none of us like the fact that we do something for someone, especially go out of our way for someone, and there's no gratitude in return. You know, I read an article about Andrew Carnegie. He was a multimillionaire. When he died, he left $1 million to one of his relatives. Now, when that relative found out he was left $1 million, you would think, oh, he would rejoice. I'm sure I'd be very happy. I'm sure you would as well if you find out, well, someone left me a million bucks. But you know what? He cursed him. He was so angry because this guy had hundreds of millions and he gave a bunch of it to charity and he only gave him one measly million. And he was so angry at this guy. And how sad. How does that make you feel when you, when you hear of such ungratefulness, when you hear of someone who's so thankless? Well, Jesus did something very amazing for these 10 lepers. Let's see how they respond to this wonderful miracle. Verse 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice, glorified God, fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. There's ten lepers they're healed of this amazing disease, and we see one comes back. And this one that comes back has the right kind of response. He comes to Jesus with a loud voice. He glorifies him. He falls down at Jesus' feet, and he gives him thanks. And Jesus responds first to this man. He says, were there not ten who were cleansed? Where are the other nine? Ten percent, not too good. There's 10 of you guys. How come only one of you have come back? Where's the other nine that I did this for as well? Aren't they grateful? Aren't they thankful? Don't they appreciate what I've just delivered them from? 
I think it's interesting. We have two different responses here to Jesus' miraculous cleansing of a life. One response of praise and glory and thanksgiving to what Jesus has done, and the other response is the exact opposite. They don't come back at all. They don't acknowledge what Jesus did, a response that didn't praise, didn't give him glory, didn't give him thanksgiving. Obviously, Jesus is looking for the response that says, I want to praise you. I want to bring glory to you. I want to thank you for what you've done for me. Now, one of the reasons I asked you to try and picture what it would be like to be a leper cleansed by Jesus and how you would respond, because I think it's important to know that in the Bible, leprosy is always a picture of sin. You see, sin, like leprosy, starts small, and then it begins to spread until it affects the entire body and defiles you and destroys you. Sin is also like leprosy, and it desensitizes a person. The longer a person continues in a particular sin, the more they lose their sensitivity towards that sin. They reach a point like the leper where they're past feeling. Now, I think it's important to recognize this parallel between sin and leprosy because Jesus made it possible for all of our sins to be cleansed, just like he made it possible for these lepers, leprosy, to be cleansed. The day that you and I accept Jesus, the day that we ask for forgiveness of our sins, Jesus says, that day I will cleanse you of your sins. And for those of you who have done that, you received that cleansing. We were freed from our slavery to sin. We were freed from the punishment that sin brings, which is hell. We were freed from the defilement that sin brings into our life. And the question I want you to think about is, how have you responded to the miraculous cleansing and forgiveness that Jesus has shown you? Are you like the one leper who is very thankful, very grateful, continues to praise the Lord for what he's done in your life? Or are you more like the other nine? You haven't really given much thanks. Or maybe you started out really thankful and you've kind of left that behind. Not so thankful anymore. Don't praise him much more. As I mentioned before, if Jesus did never did anything else for you, we still have enough to praise him for every single day. If all you could ever do is look in the past of what Jesus had done, and he never did anything in the present or anything in the future, which we know he will, you could still praise him for all that he's already done. I'm sure most of us are very thankful for our salvation but are we thankful for everything else that God does for us on a regular basis? You want know, a very challenging verse of the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says this, in everything, notice that word, everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, as a pastor, I have people come to me all the time. and They say, Pastor, I want to know what the will of God is for my life. Well, you know, one area of the will of God for your life is very clear right here. In everything, give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God for you. One of the things that God wants for each one of us is in everything he wants us to be thankful. God wants us to approach everything in life with a heart of thanksgiving to him. We can always find a reason to be thankful. But you know what? We can always find a reason not to be thankful as well. Matthew Henry, the famous Bible commentator, was robbed of his wallet once. He wrote in his diary that night all the things he was thankful about. First, that he'd never been robbed before. Second, that they only took his wallet and not his life. Third, because although they took it, it wasn't very much. And fourth, because he was the one robbed, not the one doing the robbing. 
Now think, he gets his wallet stolen. He could have wrote in his diary how horrible it was and how horrible that person was, and he could have dwelt on all the things that he was so unthankful for, but yet he chooses to look at that situation and see, what is it do I have to be thankful for in this difficult circumstance? It's easy for us to focus on things that we don't have to be thankful for, but God wants us to focus on the things that we do. I think our natural tendency is to look at the negative, but God wants us to look at the positive things that we have to be thankful for. For example, any of us who had had a job, I'm sure have had a day where it's just a miserable work day experience. And probably we've had many more than one. If you've only had one, good for you. Our natural tendency, I think, is to focus on how horrible our job is instead of thanking God that we actually have one. Instead of thanking God that, you know what, as much as I don't like this, I at least appreciate that I have a job, especially in this economy, that it helps pay my bills, to look at the positive, to look at the things I should be thankful for instead of just focusing on the things that are negative. You know, personally, I've struggled with this recently. I have a job with a pest control company. I don't really like it. I've had some days recently that have been unpleasant. And I just started complaining, you know, by myself for the most day, driving in a truck and just thinking, man, this job stinks. And, you know, but the Lord really challenged me. Hey, you should be thankful you have one. This job helps pay your bills. This job helps you to do what you love, pastoring this church. And so instead of being negative and complaining, be thankful. Be thankful that I provided this for you. Be thankful that you have something. And I think that's oftentimes difficult for us, but, you know, we can focus on which one. Am I going to focus on the negative or I'm going to focus on the positive? I've discovered as I get up to go to work, my outlook towards my job has a huge, huge impact on the kind of day I'm going to have. If I get up and I'm thinking, man, this job is so miserable. I hate this job. Oh, I got to deal with these people and I got to do this stuff. And, you know, I come already miserable. I come already without any joy. I'm already complaining. But if I come and you know what, Lord, I'm so grateful for this job. And you know what, those people that maybe are difficult, they're lost. And I got an opportunity to reach them with the gospel. And you know what, this job, as much as it's not the most fun thing in the world, at least it provides some money to pay for my bills. And how I approach that definitely is going to determine whether it's a day full of joy or a day that is joyless. I discovered you can always look at something from an ungrateful heart or a thankful heart. And God desires us to look at things with a thankful heart to him. And I think something else important for us to understand, and I have discovered it personally, the Bible makes it clear, is that an unthankful heart is definitely a heart that is fertile soil for all kinds of sin. Unthankfulness breeds sin. Notice what Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Notice verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And the list goes on that they gave themselves over to vile passions and homosexuality and all these things. But notice two of the causes to this. They didn't glorify God, and they didn't give thanks to God. 
When we're not willing to give glory to God and thanks to God, it opens up a lot of doors to sin. You know, could that be the result of some of the problems that we have in our nation today? A nation that does not want to give glory to God, a nation that does not want to give thanks to God. I find interesting, Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States a long time ago, he thought this back then when our nation was more godly than it is now. Notice what he says. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved the many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Abraham Lincoln said this back in 1862. Things have gotten a lot worse since then, but I think the same truth is there. Sadly, we're a nation, for the most part, that is unthankful to God, that does not praise him, that is not willing to confess our sin to him. Charles Spurgeon said, we often write our blessings in the sand and we engrave our complaints in the marble. I think sadly this is true for many of us. We're quick to forget the blessings. We write them in the sand, so to speak, and and it's washed away so quickly. But the complaints, we engrave them in marble. We engrave them in a place where we hold on to them, where they last because we don't let them go. Where it should be the opposite. The complaints, write them in the sand, let them get washed away. The blessings, Man, let's engrave those in marble. Let's hold on to those. Let's remember those. I think too often we're so busy complaining about the negative things in our life that we don't take time to notice what we have to be thankful for. We don't take time to notice all the things that God has done, is doing, and what the Bible says will do in the future. When we approach life in a thankless way, when we just focus on the negative things and not the positive things God is doing, it hurts us. It hurts our relationship with God. It hurts our relationship with others. So the sixth thing that Jesus tells us really matters in the Christian life is to respond to God's blessing with praise and thanksgiving. Too often we're content to enjoy the gift, but we forget to give thanks to the giver. Now, if you ever have trouble praising God, ever have trouble thanking God, I encourage you to read the Psalms, but especially Psalm 103, one of my favorite Psalms. I'm just going to read the first six verses for you, and I want you to think about what David writes about God, why you have reason to be thankful to God. Notice what it says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Notice David doesn't once make a request in this psalm. 
Everything is praise and thanksgiving. Everything is declaring something that God has done, not something that he wants God to do for him or something that he's going to do for God. Do you ever just pray with the sole purpose of thanking and praising God? I think we often just, uh, our mindset with prayer is, prayer is asking God for things. Prayer is just communication with God, and too often all our communication with God is, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. But do you ever just take time to say, Lord, I just want to thank you. I just want to praise you for what you've already given me, for what you've already done for me. Years ago, as I studied prayer, I started to make it a habit. The first thing I always try to do in my prayer is start with thanks. Before I ever get into any request of what God should give me or what I want from him, I start with thanking him for things that he's done for me. And I think that's a good habit. I would encourage you to get into the habit of starting your prayers first. Take some time just to thank God before you start asking of things from God. You know, the thing that you and I have to be most thankful for, the thing that God has done for us greater than anything else is sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin to take the punishment that we deserve, to take the judgment that we deserve. And as we do at the first of every month, we're going to close this morning taking some time to take communion together, time to remember what Jesus has done for us. And this is just a great thing. You know, we're talking about thankfulness. We're talking about praise. What better thing to remember? What better thing to thank God for? What better thing to praise God for than the greatest demonstration of love, him sending his son for us. Thank you.